Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Josh Allen Friedman joins Nate to discuss his book, Tell the Truth Until They Bleed, Coming Clean in the Dirty World of Blues and Rock and Roll. Nate and Josh talk about Jerry Lieber and his incredible songwriting partnership with Mike Stoller, their work with Elvis Presley, Atlantic Records, The Coasters, and much more. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Josh Allen Friedman, author of Tell the Truth Until They Bleed, Coming Clean in the Dirty World of Blues and Rock and Roll. Josh, welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Dallas. And where am I talking to? What city? I'm in Austin, Texas. So it's an all-Texas episode okay. right now. All-Texas. <laughs> That's right. But we're not going to be talking about Texas. We're going to be talking about uh, mostly New York, and we're going to be talking a lot of 50s R&B and rock and roll. This is a great book. It's an anthology collection of pieces you had written um, over a period of time for various publications, but it's got a nice thematic connectivity, and it leads off with an extended piece on Jerry Lieber, famous for being one half of Lieber and Stoller not just one of the great songwriting teams in rock and roll and American history, but the first guys to ever get the billing record producer. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, you say, um, you know, uh, one half, Jerry Lieber being one half of Lieber and Stoller, but oh my God, what a half he was. Indeed. He might, he might even be, he might even be 75% for that matter. Cause the songs that Lieber and Stoller wrote, which everybody in the world knows, are uh, lyric driven um, and the title of record producer came about I think it came about a, approximately 19 let's say 1958 during a uh, a meeting that Lieber and Stoller Lieber and Stoller had been producing hit records for Atlantic the great uh, R&B studio of the 1950s and they wanted something they were doing the whole productions they were writing the records they were they were in the studio conducting the, the 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 musicians and singing out the parts and putting everything together, including sound effects like machine guns and and cars and freight trains and stuff that had never really been done on. Uh, well, maybe Spike Jones did some of it, but uh, a lot of things that had never been done on recording. And they wanted a little extra credit, a little extra money from Atlantic Records, and they had just produced a. Um, uh, a couple of coasters hits. So they sat down with Jerry Wexler, the co, the co-president of Atlantic Records, and they banged out a new contract. And Wexler was asking them, "Well, if you want more money and you want another credit on the records, what do you want it to be called? What What are you, the command com commandant? Are you the uh, uh, what are you, the director, like Cecil B. DeMille or something? What do you want to be called?" And they said, "Well, how about producer?" So. 
the rest is history. Atlantic Records accused them of being lustful and greedy for wanting more credit on a, <laughs> on a record, such a thing you'd never been asked for before. There was this term called music supervisor that you would see on records in the 50s, which was the equivalent of a producer. But that was usually a, just a guy who was a traffic cop, you know, waving the musicians in and out. So Lieber and Stoller became the first credited producers in music history. And thus the term, the dubious term producer. Nobody knows exactly what a music producer does and neither do most music producers. But the work speaks for itself. And, and you mentioned the coasters where, you know, they work together with the coasters on hits like Yakety Yak and Charlie Brown, um, Search and so many just epic hits. And like you said, they were lyric driven. They were basically, you know, two and a half minute playlets that they were uh, called playlets. Told yeah. a whole story. And I do have to put a shout out for Mitch Miller, who's kind of an obsession of mine on this show. The the producer, although he wasn't called that, he was the head of A&R for Columbia. And he had pioneered a lot of this stuff in the early 50s. It was just it was for stuff like how much is that doggy in the window? Um, so it didn't have any you know real rock and roll connection. Labor and Solar definitely where, where, took that baton. Where would we be without Mitch Miller and without how much is that doggy in the window? My dog <laughs> is barking, by the way, in the other room in case you hear a dog bark. Uh, yeah, totally that was the anti-rock and roll. That's that's the whole reason we needed rock and roll because of uh, uh, how much was that doggy in the window, which represented you know ninety-eight percent of all music that you would hear until rock and roll started coming on the airwaves. And know? how but, did a couple of guys like Lieber and Stoller, who were Jewish kids coming out of high school in Los Angeles, how did they become such big players in the R and B scene? Well. They started, believe it or not, they actually started writing ditch blues records for Jimmy Witherspoon and people like, and Big Joe Turner. And when they were 17 years old in the year 1950, two Jewish kids in Los Angeles, you can't imagine something more freaky and more unusual. They would be the only two Jewish kids, the only two white people practically in the world writing records for black artists. And at a time when they starting beginning when they were 17, which is um, an anomaly that's unprecedented. Uh, what would that be the equivalent be like now? I mean, if there were like two ghetto kids, um, two black ghetto kids right now who started writing records in Yiddish and they started becoming hits and became like overtook the music. That would be the equivalent of something like that. That's how unusual that was at that time. Um, Jerry Lieber himself worked. In, at Clifton's cafeteria in Los Angeles, just as a dishwasher, and the you know the cook who was next to him used to listen to a show called the Hunter Hunter Hancock's Harlem Matinee, which was a, a an R and B show to the left of the dial, which is where blues stations were then. They were very hard to pick up at the very left of the dial on the radio. And it was black music for black people that no white people listened to. I mean, none at that time. And he fell in love with that music and it just spoke to him. And the the songs that first changed his life when he was 15 were um, Amos Milburn's Bad, Bad Whiskey, which still is a fucking, um, I don't know if I can say that. You can cut. Great song. Let it go. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's, a it's still great a great song. song. Anybody, I mean, it, to me, it sounds like it should be a hit right now. Uh, bad, bad whiskey. Um, and uh, Jimmy Witherspoon's uh, "Ain't No Business," like uh, "Ain't No Business." Of, uh, what was the song? "Ain't No Business But My Own." Um, changed his life, and he was learning it from the black, the fellow cooks and black dishwashers at Clifton's cafeteria. And he started keeping a notebook, just writing his own lyrics, and. By the time he was 17 in 1950, he was working at the local record store on Fairfax or somewhere like that. And, and it was called Nordy's Record Shop in 1950. He's 17. And this uh, slick gentleman comes in, looks like a pimp almost, a white guy named Lester Sill, who was the promotional manager of modern records that did black music. And he was wondering why there were no black records at Nordy's record shop. They only had, you know, stuff like Doris Day and how much is that doggy in the window, which is what people bought. And somehow they got to talking and Jerry got to showing him his notebook of, uh, of songs. He said, I write songs. I'm a songwriter. 
and they were blues lyrics. And Lester Sill was very taken with this. He said, do you have music to these? Do you have lead sheets? And Jerry said, what are those? He said, well, you write down the notes that a singer follows with the lyrics, and that's how you sell a song. He said, you need to have lead sheets for these, and I'll come back. And at that moment, Jerry found his partner when they were 17, Mike Stoller. He called, uh, he called a few friends, and this piano player was recommended. Oh, he can write lead. He knows how to write music. He can write lead sheets. And they paired up at 17, and within months, they started having records for, for the black audience in 1950 and they were hits and they continued yeah. to have hits for the next six or seven years until they broke through with the brand new rock and roll market with young blood, I think was the first and searching searching and young blood. Everybody knows those songs. Even kids today would say, Oh, I've heard that. Um, which were the first two, I think big hits that the coasters had. Um, the coasters were their alter ego group. They were like four vaudevillian singers. They were comical. And they did comical doo-wop songs that, the, that Lieber and Stoller wrote. The, if Jerry had been a singer, which he was, if he had, gone, if he had made his own records, they would have been like the, the material they gave to the coasters. And their serious songs for adults were their second group, which was called The Drifters, who had many great hits that everybody knows. I'm sure you'll play something by them. We will, but today. let's jump so in they, first and let's hear from the Robins, who were the coasters before they were the coasters. This the Sleeper and Stoller recorded them in LA and before they went to uh, New York and Atlantic, and some of the future coasters came with them and they reformed a group and renamed it. But this is the most famous Robins song and one of the most famous Lieber and Stoller song. It's Riot and Cell Block Nine. Known better by its chorus, there's a riot going on. July the 2nd, 1953 I was serving time for armed robbery At 4 o'clock in the morning I was sleeping in my cell I heard a whistle blow Then I heard somebody yell There's a ride going on That was the Robin singing Lieber and Stoller's Riot and Cell Block 9, uh, infamously not covered by Sly, Stolo Sly Stone on his album. There's a riot going on, but uh, a lot of other people and covered, covered by it. the Beach Boys. Renamed. Covered. Yeah. They, the Lieber and Stoller have more covers than anybody but Irving Berlin in the history of music. They have probably tens of thousands of covers. So everybody knows that refrain. There's a riot going on. It's been like used on children's cartoons. and It's been readapted and reused in, in, in hundreds of different ways. I, I remember the Beach Boys did on Surf's Up even did a, a really different version of it where they, they just feel like they're allowed to change the lyrics any way they want. Yeah, I think that was a Mike Love special. Student, student, student protest, protest time. time. There's, a, there's a riot going on. But everybody knows that refrain but they don't know where it came from. And it came from the record you just played. And the machine gun shots reflect Jerry Lieber's love of early radio that he grew up with, of all the detective series uh, on, on radio in the 1940s when he was a kid in the 30s and 40s with, that had amazing sound effects, better sound effects than anybody even comes up with today. That they do live on radio shows and they put that into their records those kind of sound effects. And it added to the wit, you know, of Jerry Lieber and, and the brilliance of those little playlets that he wrote to create something totally unique and novel. And you've dropped two threads that I want to pick up. And and we'll get to Doc Palmas, who co-wrote Youngblood with them here in a minute. But you mentioned Irving Berlin. And this is a theme that I picked up on in, in your chapters on Lieber and also your chapter on Doc Palmas. There was an American tradition from the twenties through the fifties of the great American songbook and songwriters like Irving Berlin and the Gershwins and Cole Porter uh, and others, Harold Arlen, et cetera, wrote this great body of work that became, you know, the backbone of the jazz standards and also a big part of pop music. And guys like Lieber and Stoller and Doc Pomus and Phil Spector were very much in the shadow of those guys and had kind of an inferiority complex. And I hadn't really thought that through until I was reading your, your book. And it's very clear that people like Lieber, even though they were massively successful, not just having R&B hits, but having pop hits, making big money, 
they weren't respected in the 50s and 60s the way that people like Irving Berlin had been in the 30s and 40s. Talk about that a little bit and that sort of inferiority well, this complex. Is a, this is a tremendous um, um, insight that you just brought up that nobody today would even consider. But in the 1950s, the music that Lieber and Stoller wrote for the Coasters, the Drifters, for Elvis, a lot of, a lot of hits for Elvis, and for everybody that they wrote for, uh, and produced was considered teenage junk for 15 year olds. It was disposable. It was considered that week's music and it was going to be thrown out and never heard again. And it was despised. Rock and roll was absolutely despised by wealth, by Sinatra and by all the classic songwriters of the age, um, including Irving Berlin, who considered Elvis to sound like gorilla noise. Um, it was despised by Frank Lesser, who wrote Guys and Dolls. It was despised by by Rogers and Hammerstein. It was considered, um, they called it three-chord manure back then. And they had contempt for the songwriters who wrote rock and roll. It was a teenage market. It was not listened to by adults. I'm talking about in the 1950s. And the songwriters, like Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller and Doc Pomus, um, carried a heavy... Um, guilty feeling that they were just junkmeisters, that they were just uh, writing crap. Stuff that we consider genius now, that is the second American songbook being the songbook of rock and roll, of early rock and roll, that everybody to, to this day still knows and loves, that influenced everything that came after it, was considered junk in its own time. And the songwriters felt like they were, they were um, inferior, uh, that they were um, writing for it was like t juvenile the, the the soundtrack of juvenile delinquency and garbage and you know like uh, confectional candy they didn't come to realize how fantastic their music was until maybe by the late 60s it started occurring to them that wait a minute this stuff has lasted and of course it was idolized and completely uh, influenced the whole wave of, of what happened came from England, which um, brought it all back alive. It would have died out like hula hoops if it hadn't been for the Beatles and then the Stones and everybody, everything to follow. Rock and roll would probably not exist today. It would be remembered in the same way that hula hoops are remembered. It's just this funny little thing that happened in the 50s that the kids listened to. But look what they, it was taken and, and, and uh, it was turned into something called rock by the 60s, by, by the starting with the Beatles. They created something out of rock and roll that became even 10 times more. And, and uh, it's interesting in the book because you, you quote Lieber, who's very complimentary toward the English artists that, that covered his songs, not just the Beatles, but, you know, the Hollies and, and many others, the Kinks that, that covered Lieber and Stoller songs. But the first time a white kid had massive success covering a song that they had written for the black audience, they didn't like it at all. And I'm talking about Elvis's Presley's version of Hound Dog, which they had written for Big Mama Thornton. And, and I kind of want to, let's go through that whole story. Like you tell the story of how they came to work with a guy named Johnny Otis, who was also not black, but he was a big player in the R&B scene, probably best remembered today for his song, Willie and the Hand Jive. But he was a band leader who, sort of like a 1950s George Clinton, he had multiple bands under his thumb that were on multiple labels. And one of these artist was Big Mama Thornton, who was working with a gangster out of Houston named Don Roby that I've talked with Ed Ward on the show about many times. And Lester Sill shows up with Lieber and Stoller, and Big Mama wasn't having it. Well, um, I would say that um, Hound Dog was written in about 15 or 20 minutes just in the car. Um, and it was one of their black R&B records uh, for, for, um, big mama Thornton. And, um, you'd mentioned, uh, all the people that were involved in that. Johnny Otis was actually Greek, but he was the blackest white guy in the, in the world. You know, I mean, there's like three or four guys I can think of in, in, in history who were like blacker than any black people who happened to be white. You know, another one would be, you know, someone like Dr. John, <laughs> yeah. Johnny Otis was like that. He was a black hipster. 
but he was the son of Greek immigrants and he was a music broker. He just, he had uh, all these musicians and bands under his tutelage uh, doing really interesting, really nice records uh, uh, for the black market in the early fifties, mid fifties and doing, especially doing live music tours like junkets of, of all his artists. And he had uh, Jerry and Mike come in and, and listen to um, all of his artists. This must have been in the in the early fifties. Uh, I remember the one Jerry talking about one act called Three Tons of Joy, and he said there were like three girls, each one with three black girls, each one weighed about a thousand pounds, <laughs> and he said they were great. And he, he was afraid that the whole stage was going to collapse. They came into a rehearsal room or something to watch Johnny Otis's acts, and. Uh, when Big Mama got up, um, they felt they had a, the germ of an idea for her. And I believe they jumped into Mike Stoller's car and ran back to his home to his piano. And Jerry just started, as he always did. And, and I would see this happen because I'd known Jerry Lieber since I was nine years old. And he would, he would become uh, manic when he had a lyric, when he had an idea, when he had a song. And he would sing it out in a manic form. It would just come out in five minutes. Most of the songs they wrote, and they only wrote about 250 songs, but every one of those songs is a, is a hit, uh, is, is a song, practically every one is a song that you know. Um, but he would get manic and he started spewing out the lyrics to Hound Dog. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. Um, different lyrics from how Elvis sang. It didn't make any sense the way Elvis sang it. It wasn't about a rabbit or anything. It was about a, uh, uh, a gigolo, basically. uh, Yeah. A guy who abuses women and who's just like a a bad guy to women. He's looking for free meals and a free place to stay and, and, you know, not going to give much in return. Yeah. That's the guy they were writing about and had nothing to do with the rabbit and the way Elvis changed the lyrics. And, uh, they ran to Mike Stoller's piano, knocked it out in a matter of minutes and came back and handed it to Big Mama. And she didn't take it seriously. And um, oh, how, how was the story as he told it? She said, well, tell Lieber me, White to Boy, in. how do it go? How yeah. do it go, White Boy? And Jerry started singing it out to her and she started singing it back and the band went, they went right in and recorded it. And that's the great version of Hound Dog that Big Mama Thornton recorded. I think it was 1954, was it? I was Probably earlier than 1954. that. I think oh my God, it's uh, shocking to think how you know what was going on back then. In the, it did become an R&B hit, which was a uh, it was a chart in Billboard and Cashbox called Race Records, and it was Jerry Wexler in the early 50s who changed the name Race Records to R&B Rhythm and Blues whole different rhythm and blues than what they call R&B today. I don't understand how they call today's R&B R&B. Anyway, uh, it became a huge hit with black folks. And then there were a hundred answer songs and, you know, right up to Homer and Jethro doing, doing versions of Hound Dog and answer songs, they called them. Yeah. Rufus so Thomas did Bearcat on Sun Records. The first hit one for of the most, Sam Phillips. That became a hit. Even the answer songs were becoming hits. So it became a little cottage industry, that song, before Elvis even recorded it. Before Elvis even recorded it. And before we get to Elvis, I want to ask you a little bit about, tell us about how Johnny Otis and Don Roby made off with the songwriting royalties for that song. Oh, somehow. Well, in those days, people didn't really pay attention to publishing and songwriting credits unless they were deeply entrenched in the music industry. like. Don Roby, like Johnny Otis, who really knew to put their names on it. And Lieber and Stoller were, by the time they wrote Hound Dog, they couldn't have been 20, 21 years old. And they weren't, they didn't have the muscle to keep their names on it. And uh, Johnny Otis's name came on the song as songwriter. Some, a lot of the records of Hound Dog that, that appeared in the early 50s just said Johnny Otis. I think they might have said Lieber, Stoller, Otis or something like that. But that was common back then probably still is today um for the business end of it guy to put his name on the song the most famous example of that would be let's say 
Why Do Fools Fall in Love, Frankie Lyman's hit, you know, uh, Morris Levy, the mobster, the Jewish mobster who ran um, ran several record companies back in the in the 50s, put his name on Why Do Fools Fall in Love. Um, he did not write it, obviously. So it took decades for them to be able to wrench wrench his name off and 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 the same with uh lieber and stoller by the time lieber and stoller became powerful in the by the 60s and were at the top of the brill building they were finally able to wrench off the name johnny otis from hound dog and and they claimed jerry claimed he never received any real money for it until the 60s and that johnny otis had been receiving all the checks including after elvis had a huge hit and a huge hit, like you point out, the, the scale of the difference between an R&B hit, like when Big Mama hit with Hound Dog, it sold you know in the tens of thousands. But when Elvis right. hit with Hound Dog, it sells in the millions, maybe as many as eight million. And that song takes a weird little journey. I want to summarize quickly and then let you take over. But a band named Freddie Bell and the Bell Boys started doing a totally battlerized version of it that loses the point right. of the lyrics of the song that were about basically a pimp or a gigolo who's freeloading off his woman. And they just turn it into this expression of sort of a nonsensical expression of the id. I mean, it's just rock and roll power and a very white boy clunky four to the bar way. Elvis hears this in Vegas and he knew the big mama Thornton song, but he fell in love with the Freddie Bell bellboys version and the rest is history you know cuts a version of hound dog that lyrically makes no sense but definitely rocks and Lieber and solar hear this and Lieber in particular is not amused at first until somebody explains the math to it well you just explained it you just said the story there apparently uh, from what jerry Lieber told me um elvis was in las vegas in 1957 or 56 and there was a, a just a lounge band called Freddie Bell and the Bellboys that played Hound Dog, and he he was struck by it and said, "I want to record that." And they had done a a bastardized version of it with the lyrics changed, and that's the one that Elvis copied. Jerry said he just copied what they did in the lounge, uh, note for note, on the on on the record. And of course, Elvis's record went on to, like you say, sell probably seven or eight million as opposed to a R&B hit on the, in the black market, which was a huge hit, would be 30,000 copies. That would be a huge hit. Actually, that doesn't sound like bad sales to me today, 30,000. Yeah, so seven that million, would be big. Seven million would be a typical. Anything Elvis put out, every single he put out, would be five million, seven million. You know, the B-side would take a ride on it, and, and, and whoever wrote the B-side, that's why they would put these clinkers on the B-sides of Elvis records, you know, so that Aaron Schroeder, who wrote them, uh, the B-sides usually uh, could clean up. Uh, it didn't matter what was on the B-side. But apparently, um, whatever year that was, 56, 57, probably 56, Mike Stoller had gone on his honeymoon on the, on the Italian ship, the Andrea Doria, which sunk many miles off the coast of New York and had to, people had to be rescued by boat. And as Mike Stoller was being rowed back to shore from his, the sunken ship, this was a, a famous uh, tra uh, near tragedy. I guess people were saved from the Andrea Doria. I think some people died. I, I would qualify that as a full-on tragedy, I think. It was a famous Okay, it was a tragedy. It was a, a great ship sinking, uh, like the Titanic, except more people were rescued, I believe. Um, around 56 um Stoller got back with his wife to shore from uh, he was still wet um and jerry came down you know hoping to see if he was alive if he had survived Jer jerry rushed down to the uh to the docks um in uh, in new york to see to see to pick up mike Stoller. and he said by the way and Stoller was alive and with his wife and they were all shaken up and wet and, you know, messed up from being on a, a ship that sank. And Mike said, by the way, a hound dog is, is a hit by a, guy, by a guy named Elvis. And Stoller didn't even know who Elvis was at that moment. And he said, what do you mean? He says, it's all, it's all over the place. It's on the charts. It's number one. And they, uh, Stoller was shocked. And then, of course, they found out who Elvis was and went into do the music for his first uh, or second movie, his second Jailhouse Rock.
um, and, and, and wrote the score and then and produced it and everything. But that's and, how Mike Stoller found out about Hound Dog. And, and they weren't appreciative of Hound Dog, but when they met Elvis and worked with him, they had a very different impression. They hated the record Hound Dog when they heard it because it, it boulderized their lyrics, their intention, and they didn't feel it meant any, it made any sense. So they hated the record, but they kept their mouths shut because it was such a monstrous success. Um, and when they went into in L.A. to work with Elvis to, to write, I think they wrote two movies for him. Um, I think they wrote two movies, but Jailhouse Rock being the first one. At least two. I know they did King Creel and Jailhouse Rock. I think they wrote Jailhouse Rock. Maybe another one. Um, They did it in like a weekend. They knocked out the score. And they went into the studio and they produced those records, Jailhouse Rock, which also became an enormous, enormous hit. Um, It's not that great a record. It's not that, but, you know, considering that it's, use in the movie and the dance that Elvis does. It's so iconic. Um, but anyway, uh, they certainly appreciated and liked Elvis when they met him and worked with him in the studio and thought that he was gifted to a point. They didn't think he was as great as some of the artists they had already worked with, but they um, appreciated that he was talented and, and that he had a great voice. Uh, he could only sing the way he heard it on Jerry said he could only sing the song exactly in the key and the way he heard it on the demo. So when Jerry would write the song and they demo it out, Mike and Jerry on piano, he said, that's how Elvis did it. And that's what Otis Blackwell said to Otis Blackwell wrote, don't be cruel and return to sender, I believe. And uh, great balls of fire for Jerry Lee and and others. One of the great rock and roll songwriters. One of the really great writers. And he wrote three or four of Elvis's greatest hits, Don't Be Cruel, Return to Sender, and uh, All Shook Up. He wrote All Shook Up. Kind of invented that kind of rock pop, rock pop, rockabilly song, pop song, uh, Otis Blackwell. But Otis Blackwell's demos were exactly as Elvis sang it too. Elvis couldn't like improvise or change anything. He just sang it exactly as he heard it. And even in the same key as he first heard it, he would say, he told Jerry, he said, I'm sorry. He said, Mr. Lieber, that, you know, the, the key that it's in that on, on this, on this tape is the key I'm going to sing it in just like the tape. And I had heard Otis Blackwell sing those songs in Doc Pomas's apartment a few times. And, uh, you'd think Otis Blackwell was imitating Elvis, but it was the other way around. <laughs> and we'll come back to Elvis and Lieber and Stoller, but I want to introduce our next major player in today's tale, and that's Doc Pomus. And here's Ray Charles doing a song that Doc wrote called Lonely Avenue. Come through, you know it's always dark and dreary Since I broke off, baby, with you I live on a lonely avenue My little girl wouldn't say I do Ray Charles doing Doc Palmas's Lonely Avenue, which is a song that Palmas wrote towards the end of his singing career and before he partnered with Mort Schumann, with whom he wrote Say the Last Dance for Me and so many other hits. Um, I'm blanking on, on a list of them, but magnificent book of songs. And Palmas is another guy, another Jewish kid who's an authentic bluesman. He He's uh, crippled by polio and at the age of 18, is touring the R&B circuit of Brooklyn, basically. He's playing dives in Brooklyn and the Bronx and, and Harlem and singing the blues and getting over with black audiences. But he couldn't ever make it as a recording star. Well, Doc was on crutches. Doc had polio as a child and um, was, was on crutches. He couldn't, be, uh, he couldn't be a matinee idol. He was cutting records cutting 78 records with the Count Basie Orchestra uh, since 1943. He made about 30 sides over those years in the, through the 1940s and early 50s as a blues singer. And there's another example. Uh, I think he was pra- practically the only white blues singer in America. 
in those years. I can't think of anyone else. I mean, Mose Allison would have been, but this is before Mose Allison's career, career started. Um, I don't think there was anyone else. Uh, Jack Teagarden, I don't know if he sang, but he, he made yeah, black. He was a horn player. Record. And, you know, there were, there were singers like Bing Crosby and the Andrews Sisters and others that were influenced by jazz. You know, Frank Sinatra, obviously. A whole different but, thing. But not this kind of hardcore blues that Palmas was singing. And we, we should also make the distinction, because this is one of the other things you brought out in the book, is that Palmas is part of a scene with like Big Joe Turner from Kansas City who had moved to New York and, and you know, does Shake, Rattle and Roll and, and other great rock and roll hits. But there's a, a form of rhythm and blues in the big cities that actually sort of looks down on the rural country blues, even when it was electrified by people like Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf. It's a very different scene. The, the Doc Palmas, Big Joe Turner that was the popular and successful stuff. That's the stuff that influences Ray Charles and the Drifters, et cetera, et cetera. That's the mainstream of African-American popular music in the 40s and 50s. Well, that's the big city music as opposed to the country rural blues. And as an analogy to the um, alongside the, the concept we talked about before of, the, of all the classic American songwriters hating rock and roll back in the 50s, likewise, the blues, the big city blues players and jazz musicians, the black ones even, of the 1950s looked down upon their country brethren. You know, they they didn't like John Lee Hooker or Muddy Waters or Howlin' Wolf or or uh, um, um, they Lightning thought Hopkins. that was like ba- Lightning Hopkins, especially. They thought that was um, backwards, you know, corny, you know, slow. Uh, illiterate music from the South. They didn't like that. They were these were jazz musicians who played jump blues back in the fifties. And I'm talking about King Curtis and Mickey Baker, the great studio guitarist. King Curtis was the greatest um, studio uh, sax player. Played on hundreds and hundreds of records. Did the solos like I'll just say real quick, like Yakety Yak. If you think of the sax solo in that, that's King Curtis. Um, but all the jazz jazz blues players and the jump blues players epitomized by Big Joe Turner looked down on country blues, including Doc, back in the 50s. Now, they all came together by the 60s and 70s, and everybody appreciated everybody's blues by then. But um, you were saying when, when Doc, when Doc was, was making records as a singer, he was on crutches, and he had one... I thought fantastic record. It could have been a hit by Elvis in 1956. Um, what the hell is it called? Heartlessly. The name escapes. It's called Heartlessly. 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 It could have been a, a, a number one hit if Elvis had done it. But Doc, it was Doc's last record, and it was his last shot at becoming a star. And when RCA bought the master they, they uh, from the smaller record company that released it in Harlem or somewhere, um, they just killed it when they saw pictures of Doc and crutches. He's not going to be a matinee idol. Uh, white teenagers are not going to buy it. And that kind of crushed his soul and, and killed off his singing career. He gave up at that point and just became a songwriter. And he's the one who, uh, within a year after he quit singing, he had Youngblood as a, as a rock, his first rock and roll hit. And that was just a series of lyrics that he had written and given to Jerry, an un, unfinished idea for a song young blood about a underage girl and all that that implies um he gave it to lieber and stoller and they turned it into the coasters hit young blood um and then he was off to the races you know with his partner mark schumann they got offices in the brill building and they started writing 12 songs a week and that went on for almost 10 years in the in the classic brill building days and they stay with Elvis after Lieber and Stoller quit because they can't get along with Colonel Tom Parker. And I mean, who tries just the most underhanded BS. I've never heard of anybody sending a blank contract and expecting somebody to sign it. But that's what Parker pulled on Lieber and Stoller. And they thought it was perhaps because they were getting too close to Elvis and were suggesting things to Elvis like doing a serious they i think they put together a deal with Elijah kazan to direct i can't remember who's going to write the book but they were going to do a serious musical drama starring elvis and colonel parker shut the whole thing down 
Yeah, what was that? Um, there was a certain movie at one point that Elvis was very interested in. I, I think the waterfront. Serious. The Marlon Brando all all along the waterfront. It was another one, another one, and and uh, Jerry Lieber was going to write the score, and it was going to be like a real serious. You know, if it wasn't on the waterfront, it might have been. Oh, it was a serious project that would have made an entirely different movie career for Elvis as a more serious actor with more serious songs than the knockoffs that Elvis was doing in, in his movies. And basically, Colonel Tom Parker prevented Elvis from associating with the five greatest songwriters of Elvis's career. That would be Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. After the first two movies, Colonel Parker didn't want Elvis to have anything to do with them physically. Um, and that would be Pomus and Schumann, Doc Pomus and Morty Schumann. Uh, he never let Elvis meet Doc Pomus in Doc's life. Doc never met Elvis or Mort Schumann. Um, and Otis Blackwell, he wouldn't let uh, Elvis, he wouldn't let Otis Blackwell near Elvis who wrote some of Elvis's greatest songs. And so we the should five mention- greatest song. Uh, this is me saying this. This isn't anything on any official record. I'm saying this. Yeah, it's very um, hard to argue. And I, I just want to mention the songs that Palmas and Schumann wrote for Elvis. Little Sister, okay. Viva Las Vegas. I mean, they wrote major. And Marie's the name. They wrote some of his absolute best. I mean, to me, they save his early 60s period. How about Whole Mess of, whole, whole mess of Blues? Mess of Blues, absolutely, on his Elvis's back. Whole Mess of Blues. If yep. Thomas and Schumann had been allowed to continue writing for Elvis instead of songs like him having to sing songs like Clambake, um, you know, <laughs> there would have been a, a different Elvis in the 60s when Elvis became pure schlock. And um, uh, Jerry and Mike would have continued to write for him. Um but Colonel Parker killed it. And just he just wanted Elvis to do Clambake by the sixties. You know, after after maybe the first couple of years of the sixties it was all downhill and and kinda killed him. Yep. And, and it, it was about Elvis the publishing. Soul. Absolutely, and probably if you know Elvis shortened been, his life. If Elvis had been pals with Doc Thomas, not to mention the other songwriters, and was able to hang out with guys like that instead of his cronies in, in, in Memphis, and instead of Colonel Parker, it, he would have had an entirely different artistic career in the 60s. And life. Uh, and in life, and probably would, you know, this is pure speculation, but how could he not have been enriched? And um, Educated. also the friendship of guys like like Doc. Doc was a, a great Buddha and, and, and just a, a mentor to everybody in New York who he knew. And everybody loved him. Um, everybody just loved him and was drawn to him. He was very fat and stuck in a wheelchair by the time I became close to him. He lived in my neighborhood in the 70s. And I would go over there uh, three nights a week and just spend the whole night in his apartment just sitting on his bed with him. And all sorts of people would come through and everybody loved him. And uh, Elvis didn't have any friends like that a guy like Doc who could have set him straight. I mean, Doc was able to wean Dr. John Macrabinac off heroin. I don't think anybody else could have done that, but somebody like Doc, I don't think Dr. John would have listened to anybody else, but he uh, was able to get off heroin and have an ex- extra 30 year career instead of just dying in the seventies. Uh, I think the same could have been for Elvis. If Elvis had lived in say New York and hung out with the right people, he would have had a whole different life and wouldn't have just died as a mess at the age of 42. But anyway, that's pure speculation. But I think it's it's on point. But I want to introduce another character because we got to cover this guy. And that's a big part of the Leaper and Solar story. You've talked about Morris Levy and his roulette records and the way they ripped off Frankie Lyman. But the other guy in that partnership was George Goldner, who ends up founding a record label with Lieber and Stoller after they fall out with Atlantic, partly over the producer credit, also partly because they pull the naive move of auditing the books at Atlantic and find, I think, an $18,000 shortfall in there. But they formed this record label, Redbird Records. And to me, it's the only American record label of that period that had a shot of competing with Barry Gordy's Motown because Lieber and Stoller had kind of graduated beyond songwriter at this point, and they were mentors of songwriters. And they're mentoring not just Pomus and Schumann, but the whole Bill, Bill, Brill building crew. You, you know, you've got Carol King and Jerry Goffin. That. 
yeah, Ellie, Ellie yeah. Greenwich and, and Jeff Berry, Manuel. I mean, you know, the whole gang, Neil Sadaka and his partner, they're mentoring all these people. But because George Goldner is a degenerate gambler, and even though he's, you know, the, the thing he added to their recipe was they could record a stack of tracks and have 20 hits and 30 records, but Goldner would know which ones were the hits and which ones to release when. But he also had this degenerate gambler problem, and everything he owned ended up going to Morris Levy and the Genovese family in the end, including Redbird Records. Well, uh, Morris Levy was a, a legendary gangster um, who owned Birdland, the great jazz club. And he owned, us, he owned record labels, and he would gamble them and buy them and sell them or, or probably take them at gunpoint from people. Um, he was a front for the mob. There's no telling who he really worked for or who was in charge of him. It could have been the, probably the Gambino family. Um, he was the most mobbed up guy in the music business. But on the other hand, if you were a young band, like, I guess, like Tommy James and the Chandels or something, Chandels, would you trade all of your money and your profits and your whole life in order to have a hit record? Well, anybody would. <laughs> People <laughs> kill, sell their mother, you know, in order to have a hit record. And somebody like, like Morris Levy, who was on the street, in the Bronx was named Moish Levy, so all the people called him Moish. Um, they, um, he, could, he could sign anybody from the street and put them on the charts. Who has that kind of power um, in, in those days? Um, that's a lot of power to have. You know, Lieber and Stoller themselves could cherry pick any band or any singer that they wanted and put them on the charts with a hit record like they did with Jay and the Americans. They could have done that with um, 500 other people and any, any one of those bands or singing groups if they had picked them could have been on the charts with uh, the songs they gave to Jay and the Americans. Uh, may not, not, not to belittle Jay and the Americans, there's some very talented guys uh, in there. But the point is they're working under the auspices and the genius of Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller who were in those days completely behind the scenes not known to the general public, but responsible for half the hits on the radio back in the, in, in the 50s and early 60s. And if not, if not having written them or produced the records, at least having overseen the records and give, you know, for instance, every hit that Phil Spector had in the early 60s, every single one came from Lieber and Stoller's uh, stable of songwriters you know, Ellie Greenwich and, and uh, Jeff Barry and all of them um, were Jerry was sending those songs to Phil and Phil would add a little a little um, bridge or a little chord change or something and then stick his name on the song, too. And of course, produce a fabulous record of it. There's no question if Phil Spector didn't produce those great songs nobody would know those great songs they would have just moldered in a, in a in a trunk somewhere but those songs all came from jerry lieber and mike stoller's stable all of phil Spector's records and a lot of other people a lot of people you know um so they were responsible for half the hits on the radio at that time and inevitably the mob moved in on lieber and stoller um by the early 60s by the mid 60s the mob moved in. They're just two guys. They're not a corporation. They're um, two guys alone. They're not one or seven arts. They're not Paramount. They're not Universal Music Group. They're two guys. And they were vulnerable to um, uh, mobsters moving in and practically, basically, uh, practically at gunpoint, just having them sign away their record labels and the right to their songs to the to the plan. George Goldner was the front man, uh, a businessman who was really big in the, in back in the, uh, there was a Cuban, there was a, 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 a um, were they Cuban records? They were, they were, uh, salsa records and, and, uh, Tito Puente and others. Yeah. They were all into that Latin scene. And that's the next thing I well, want to bring the up. Whole Latin, the whole Latin music craze of the fifties, which people don't know about today. I guess it was sort of watered down with Ricky Ricardo and I love Lucy, but there was a Latin craze in the fifties, lots of Latin records suddenly became hits. And George Goldner was the, 
music executive behind all of that. And he was a f- also a front man for the mob and, f- and worked with, with practically with partners, sort of like cutthroat partners with Moish Levy. And they moved in on Lieber and Stoller and took over their whole business. And Lieber and Stoller retired from the music. They just had to give up everything they owned, give up writing songs. And for several years, they just left. They left town. You know, yeah, they went out to the Hamptons. Uh, uh, this, would, this would be around by the mid-60s. They left town, gave up their record labels, and then, you know, a few years later came back to the music business just as independent producers. And songwriters and continued are... to continued to write songs, but they lost they lost their whole empire. And so I want to play like one more say, song. Like Motown. Yeah, I want to play one more song. Uh, the Drifters, There Goes My Baby. And this is this is a song where Lieber and Stoller bring in the Latin beat and put strings on an R and B record, which was unheard of at the time. This is the Drifters with Baby. Yeah, King. it would have been the first time the first time the Latin beat was brought into rock and roll with that particular record. And then it yeah. became a whole genre. And let's hear a little bit of it. There goes my baby. The Drifters doing Libra and Stoller's There Goes My Baby. And yeah, like you said, one of the records that brings Actually, in the let me, let me correct myself. There Goes My Baby wasn't really a Latin, particularly Latin beat, but it used strings. And that was yeah, the strings first time, the big... like a mainstream pop record used strings. I guess Buddy Holly used strings also. They had really it on pop life. records, but it's the first time you'd had an African-American artist uh, doing hardcore R&B like this with strings. And and at the time, it really blew people's minds. Like people thought two different records were playing. You know, sometimes you get radio frequencies overlap, and that's what people thought. But yeah, the Latin thing was, was a stretch, but there was tons of songs that Lieber and Stoller did incorporate the Latin beats in. And that goes on to be one of the chief distinct Marks. I mean, Burt Bacharach's whole career uses the Latin beats. Um, Doc Palmas and Mort Schumann use the Latin beat a ton. And it, it becomes like one of the sort of silent or less credited mainstreams of rock and pop music in America. And they were right in the thick of it. And they had what they called the, the Lieber and Stoller kit of percussion, where they would just pass out all kinds of rhythmic devices in the studio and anybody who wasn't playing an instrument would have to, you know, join in on tambourine or maracas or, you know, claves and, and the whole kit. So I wanted to get well, that. It was scientifically, it was scientifically with every record, they added another instrument, um, uh, another percussion instrument, another maraca, another, uh, another triangle bell or something. It, it didn't happen all at once. Um, now, what we're talking about for people to understand are records, a lot of records in the early 60s, like Under the Boardwalk and Save the Last Dance for Me, that if you pay attention and listen to it, you'll hear there's a Latin beat going on underneath with a whole, with like 10 instruments. And that was um, Jerry and Mike's production, um, starting with um, a samba. You know, they loved sambas and there was some Brazilian samba that they loved and they incorporated it into one of their early records and then built on it record by record until it was just outrageous. Um, like like uh, uh, under, by the time they're doing Under the Boardwalk, um, you just hear the whole, you know, all these different Latin sounds that uh, people take for granted. It's just American music, you know. And likewise, the in my, opi- in my opinion, um, Phil Spector's big wall of sound was nothing more than Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller's thing, except adding a bass, adding the 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 novel uh, addition of miking the bass drum, which Phil Phil Spector did for the first time, putting a mic on the bass drum, and then just adding a few more more musicians to the Lieber and Stoller kit. Uh, um, Phil Spector was apprenticed with Lieber and Stoller, and then became a household name for his records and, you know, became much more, uh, I don't want to say more successful than Lieber and Stoller, but well, he promoted himself as a star. As, he, yeah, he, he promoted himself. He was a great, great hustler. I think Spectre was brilliant, certainly brilliant, but 
90% hustler and brilliant hustler and was able to promote his name into a super, uh, you know, into a super reputation in the music business back in the sixties before he fell into just total ruin. Yeah. And a tragic tale that I talked about Mick, with Mick Brown, his biographer. And there's one song in there that, that I hadn't been aware of that until I read your book. And this is where Lieber and Stoller got the beat. And it's a Brazilian song by Silvana Mangiano and apologies for right. pronouncing anything. It's Bio de Ana. And that's the, the root where they got right. the beat and then bring it to everybody else. And not that there weren't other people bringing Latin rhythms. Cause like you said, there was a whole Latin dance scene in New York. And so Jewish kids like Mort Schumann and, and Doc Pomus were down there, you know, every weekend, uh, taking in the scene and, and dancing. So it wasn't just Lieber and Stoller, but they definitely were the spear point leading the way. And, and, uh, Ned Sublet's got some great books on the history of Cuban music and some great lectures that show even songs like satisfaction, are totally Latin beats once you once you break it down. So I wanted to get that in there because I think that's one of the most important things that Lieber and Stoller did, as well as you know they survived working with Goldner and Levy, but they got robbed. And and the only people that didn't, you know, uh, Barry Gordy had his partner Barney Ailis, who was Italian and could at least put off the impression of being mobbed up. And it's still an open question how mobbed up was Motown, but they were scary enough seeming that nobody ever came in. And then Burt Burns actually showed up with, I think it was Carmine the Snake Persico, the underboss of the Colombo family, at a meeting with with Levy and Jerry Wexler and saved his Bang Records you know, empire. So Lieber and Stoller didn't have that kind of muscle back in them, and they were just you know, prey uh, to those guys. And, and so I want to get one more song in, and this is uh, the Josh Allen band doing Lieber and Stoller's Down the Road a Piece. I believe this is an upcoming no, single no, for you. Now, no? no, wait a minute. Lieber and Stoller is uh, Down the Road a Piece is not Lieber and Stoller. That's an old boogie-woogie piano tune. You are correct. And, the Stones covered it, but it's not by Lieber and Stoller. And I, I do my, my trademark heavy acoustic uh, guitar, and it's an old boogie-woogie. My favorite version is Amos Milburn's version of Down the Road a Piece, but it was also recorded by the stones and everybody knows the tune and it's just a new single that i'm releasing yeah and it's written by don ray my bad i got it confused with down home girl which we also heard uh your version of and but this is the josh allen band doing don ray this is what i do this is my this is my thing all right let's hear it Some boogie, then I know the place. It's just an old piano and a knockout bass. Drummer man's a cat they call Charlie McCoy. You remember that old rubber-legged boy? Man, it's better than mama's chicken fried bacon grease. Come on, give me boys just down the road a piece. And that was the Josh Allen band doing Down the Road a Piece by Don Ray. That was, and, that was just me alone. That was uh, just me alone. Just Josh Allen. Josh just Allen. Just me thing. alone. It was down the road a piece. Yeah, that's just yeah. me, me and the guitar. Cool. So sorry. But anyway, that's that that's okay. But, I just want to keep keep the facts straight uh, because um, people are going to use your show as uh, they're going to ingrain it into the into the manual of facts about rock and roll. Well, I hope I introduce so, more accurate information than disinformation. I know I make mistakes on every everything show, you but... said is accurate. Everything you said is accurate. I just want to make sure they didn't think down the road piece was Lieber and Stoller. Yes, yes, that's that's absolutely important. And and the book is no. Tell the Truth Until They Bleed, Coming Clean in the Dirty World of Blues and Rock and Roll. And not just Lieber and Stoller and Doc Thomas, but you've got some great stuff on, in here about Mose Allison, uh, the fabulous Thunderbirds, several of the session musicians who worked with King Curtis are in here. So it's just a really great book and the tale of your uh, romance with Ronnie Spector which I'd love to have you back on and talk about her sometime well that's that would be a crazy thing to do yeah but uh, you know <laughs> hanging at hanging at Doc Thomas's uh, all night world the rock and roll roll world back in the 70s uh, on West 72nd Street in New York you know sure enough Ronnie Spector came by late one night and the rest you know, we just rolled together for a while after that and, and so you, it became in, insane. And you live to tell the tale and tell it well in your book, Tell the Truth Until They Bleed, Coming Clean in the Dirty World of Blues and Rock and Roll. Josh Allen Friedman, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, Nate, thanks for having me. 
Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Come back next week when Nate's guest will be Chuck Haddix and the topic will be Kansas City Jazz from Ragtime to Count Basie and Charlie Parker. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Tell the truth until they bleed, coming clean in the dirty world of blues and rock and roll is published by Backbeat. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. Thank you.